You're listening to The Corbett Report. CorbettReport.com Welcome back, friends. Welcome back to The Corbett Report. I'm your host, James Corbett of CorbettReport.com, coming to you, as always, from the sunny climes of Western Japan here on this 17th day of July 2020. Welcome to episode 382 of the Corporate Report podcast, Your Body, Their Choice. Now, regardless of your opinion of the validity or applicability of this particular argument in this particular context, there is a reason why abortion advocates have latched onto the phrase, my body, my choice, as their rallying cry. It's because that statement, stripped of all of the baggage that comes with it in that particular context, represents a fundamental, inherent truth. One that we do not need to be taught. We know innately is the truth. Namely, that I have the claim to my body and what is done to it or what is not done to it. And that is precisely why slavery is not just technically illegal. It is morally illegal outrageous. It is a deplorable thing that we all understand to be wrong. That's why rape is not just illegal, it is wrong. This is why a kidnapping and assault and a battery and a whole host of other things are not just illegal, but inherently wrong. And we do not need to be taught this. We all naturally understand it. But we do not live in a world of perfect moral reasoning or abstract philosophical ponderings, we live in a world of lawgivers and courts and police. And in that world, your bodily autonomy, your body, your choice, no longer exists. One of the things that I've heard today several times is this notion of body autonomy. And I think it's very important that we interrogate that and understand that. First of all, biologically speaking, there is no such thing. Every human being trades bacteria, viruses, genetic information with other human beings all the time. If you live in a society, that's a fact. Another piece, though, that isn't thought about as carefully is that the results of human action are constantly interfering with our health. From the moment of conception, we're all exposed to persistent organic pollutants that are the result of the chemical industry. Every breath that we take contains uh, emissions from the, the fossil fuel industry. Every moment of every day, from your first breath to your last, human action is affecting your health. The idea that there's some state you can achieve of bodily autonomy where human actions don't impact your health is uh, a false dream. It's something that if you allow to lead your thinking about how you look at issues like vaccination, you will be led to a wrong conclusion. That was Gord Perks, a city councillor for Toronto's Ward 4, Parkdale High Park District, addressing the Toronto Board of Health's meeting to discuss Toronto public health strategy to address vaccine hesitancy, more on which shortly. But first, let's step back to recognize the innate sense that we have of my body, my choice, has often been upheld and even venerated by the courts. So we could look to really many different legal precedents in many different uh, localities, different jurisdictions uh, throughout much of the world uh, that has been affected by, say, the UK common law system, Canada and Australia and the United States and others. Uh, there, there has been a tradition of this being upheld, and we can look, for example, specifically in the U.S. legal context, since I know most of my listeners are situated in the U.S., we could look to such U.S. Supreme Court decisions as Union Pacific Railway Co. v. Botsford of 1891, a case in which a passenger on the Union Pacific Railway sued the company for negligence in the construction and care of an upper berth in a sleeping car, which did fail, resulting in head injuries, including rupturing the membranes of the brain and spinal cord and causing a concussion of the same. Now, in this case, the defendant, the Union Pacific Railway, moved the court to order the plaintiff, Botsford, to undergo surgical examination, presumably to determine whether or not the injuries happened or the, uh, the extent of them. But the court held that, 
Quote, the inviolability of the person is as much invaded by a compulsory stripping and exposure as by a blow. To compel anyone, and especially a woman, to lay bare the body or to submit it to the touch of a stranger without lawful authority is an indignity, an assault, and a trespass. End quote. Fairly strong statement. We could look, for example, to Schundorf v. Society of New York Hospital from 1914, a case in which, in 1908, a patient was admitted to the Society of New York Hospital with stomach pains. The, a lump was discovered, and the doctors informed the patient that a further examination involving etherization was going to be required in order to determine the nature of that lump. The patient consented to that etherized examination, but specifically forbade any surgery to take place during the examination. But while they had her under, a lump was discovered and surgically removed. Now, the patient did develop gangrene and had to have fingers amputated after the surgery. Uh, so she did sue the hospital and won, with the court deciding that, quote, in the case at hand, the wrong complaint of is not merely negligence, it is trespass. Every human being of adult ears and sound mind has a right to determine what shall be done with his own body, and a surgeon who performs an operation without his patient's consent commits an assault for which he is liable in damages. We don't have to go back into the mists of time for these examples either. We can look to more recent cases. For example, Cruzon v. Director, Missouri Department of Health from 1990, uh, a case in which the U.S. Supreme Court heard uh, arguments revolving around the withdrawal of life-saving medical care and ultimately upheld that, quote, the logical corollary of the doctrine of informed consent is that the patient generally possesses the right not to consent, that is, to refuse treatment, end quote. Now, again, we could see, find, I'm sure, many, many more examples in U.S. case law and in the case law of many other jurisdictions around the world, but I think the point is made. There are some very strong statements here about bodily autonomy, about the right, the freedom from trespass by others into one's own body for the purposes of medical treatment or otherwise. But you will note that many of these examples contain embedded weasel words of various sort, generally possesses the right. Or you'll often see um, statements about emergency situations or as authorized by law or in the interest of the public good, public health, something along those lines embedded in these decisions. And that largely stems from another decision that looms large in the legal history of this abrogation of the bo uh, uh, bodily autonomy that we're talking about here, namely Jacobson v. Massachusetts. In 1904, a Lutheran minister, Swedish immigrant Henning Jacobson, objected to a Cambridge, Massachusetts Board of Health law requiring all adults to get a second smallpox vaccination or pay a $5 fine. Pastor Jacobson and his son had suffered severe reactions to previous smallpox vaccinations, and he logically argued that genetic predisposition placed him at higher risk for dying or being injured if he was revaccinated. He correctly concluded that smallpox vaccine ingredients were toxic and often caused injury and even death, and that medical doctors were unable to predict who would be harmed. He made the legal and ethical argument that being required to get revaccinated was an assault on his person and a violation of his 14th Amendment right to liberty and equal protection under the law. But the attorneys representing medical doctors persuaded judges in the state court that Jacobson did not know what he was talking about and ruled against him. Instead of simply paying a $5 fine, Jacobson appealed to the U.S. Supreme Court it was a mistake that led to one of the most unethical and dangerous legal decisions in American jurisprudence. In a split decision with one dissenting vote, the court majority, including Oliver Wendell Holmes, said that citizens do not have the right under the U.S. Constitution to be free at all times because there are, quote, manifold restraints to which every person is necessarily subjected for the common good. They said the state legislatures have the constitutional authority 
to enact compulsory vaccination laws and exercise police power to restrict or eliminate liberty during smallpox epidemics to, quote, secure the general comfort, health, and prosperity of the state. The judges dismissed Jacobson's concern about being genetically susceptible to vaccine harm. Instead, they chose to incorrectly affirm the infallibility of doctors by making this ignorant statement, quote, the matured opinions of medical men everywhere and the experience of mankind, as all must know, negative the suggestion that it is not possible in any case to determine whether vaccination is safe. Comparing compulsory smallpox vaccination of adults with the military draft in times of war, the judges declared that a citizen, quote, may be compelled by force if need be, against his will and without regard to his personal wishes or his pecuniary interests or even his religious or political convictions to take his place in the ranks of the army of his country and risk the chance of being shot down in its defense. That was Barbara Lowe Fisher of the National Vaccine Information Center in a report entitled Forced Vaccination, the Tragic Legacy of Jacobson v. Massachusetts that the NVIC published back in 2016. And I think you'll agree with me that that presentation is probably even more relevant today than it was at that time. So I do exhort you to go and uh, find the link in the show notes for today's episode and watch that full presentation because I think it really is relevant and important, but I think you at least get the gist of the Jacobson v. Massachusetts case and its importance from just that clip that we watched there. But there are a few things that I want to note explicitly about this case. First, it is interesting, as Fisher notes, that the parallel was drawn explicitly by the court in its opinion uh, between conscription and forced vaccination. If the government can presume to conscript your body into the military and then send it off to war and quite likely to die for your country, well then surely it can force its citizenry to take a vaccine for the good of the country, can't it? And please note that in that parallel, it doesn't even matter, even if it were to be acknowledged that a significant portion of the population would likely suffer some sort of adverse reaction to this vac vaccination, or some would even die, because surely when people are conscripted into the military, some will die. That is, uh, that is absolutely 100% known, and yet it continues to happen. So, uh, why can't we do that with forced vaccination? Well, Conscription has changed in the U.S. context over the years, but still, in the minds of many people, conscription is not on the same level as slavery, uh, morally speaking, which is odd when you think about it. Um, but most people don't think about it. And because they don't think about it, well, if we can conscript you, we can force vaccinate you. Yeah, same thing. Right? Impeccable logic. Can't argue with that. Uh, another important thing to note about this case is the fact that the court, I, I, I really do, I beseech you to go and read the actual opinion, read the case, because when you do, you will find that ultimately the court did not rule that Jacobson had to be strapped down and forcibly injected with the smallpox vaccine. No, it ruled that he was obligated to pay the $5 fine, which was the law that Massachusetts had enacted for vaccine refusers. Yeah, you can refuse to take the vaccine, but you have to pay a $5 fine. That was what the initial court case was about. He refused to pay the fine. So ultimately, he paid the $5 fine. That's what came out of that Supreme Court case. They did not strap anyone down and forcibly inject them with anything. That is not the, court, the case precedent that we're talking about here, despite the way it might be presented by people of well, shall we say, not, uh, not good intentions uh, who talk about this case. And many people do talk about this case because as it has been called in the past, this is one of the most important pieces of public health jurisprudence in U.S. history. It is cited constantly by courts. And one particular citation that the Supreme Court made to Jacobson v. Massachusetts that I hope my listeners will be familiar with because it was presented in Why Big Oil Conquered the World is the Buck v. Bell decision written by Justice Oliver Wendell Holmes. You will, I hope, remember the story of Carrie Buck and her forcible uh, in, uh, sterilization at the hands of the state uh, because she was mentally uh, in, uh, in, incapable. She was incompetent. She was 
an underclass and thus deserved sterilization, which was the opinion of the U.S. Supreme Court. That was Buck v. Bell. And guess what they cited to back up that decision? Guess what uh, Oliver Wendell Holmes cited specifically? I'll read it uh, with a little bit of the context here from his decision. We have seen more than once that the public welfare may call upon the best citizens for their lives. It would be strange if it could not call upon those who already sap the strength of the state for these lesser sacrifices, often not felt to be such by those concerned, in order to prevent our being swamped with incompetence. It is better for all the world if instead of wanting, waiting to execute a degenerate offspring for crime, or to let them starve for their imbecility, society can prevent those who are manifestly unfit from continuing their kind. The principle that sustains compulsory vaccin- vaccination is broad enough to cover cutting the fallopian tubes. Three generations of imbeciles are enough. Now, I'm willing to bet that if you know any quotations from any Supreme Court decision, you probably know three generations of imbeciles are enough, which of course was a lie. That was absolutely not the case. And again, you can go back to Wybeck Oil for more more discussion of that and links to further sources where you can get more involved in that Bug V. Bell case and what it the precedent it set and how it was wrong and all of that. But I think the point is, uh, for today's purposes, yes, the principle of that sustains compulsory vaccination is broad enough to cutting the fallopian tubes. So if we can forcibly inject you, then, well, we can forcibly cut your fallopian tubes. Why not? We can forcibly do anything we want to your body because the state owns you. And guess what he cites right there. Right before the most famous words ever penned, I think, by the U.S. Supreme Court, Jacobson v. Massachusetts. Yes, of course, that's the case that he cites to to cite the principle that sustains compulsory vaccination. And then three generations of imbeciles are enough. So, yes, this is an important case precedent, and it is obviously going to be, it has been used for many, well, for a century plus now, and it will continue to be used by courts to uphold the principle, essentially, that, well, if it's in the public good, if it's if it's the determination of the public health officials that, oh, by the way, you didn't appoint in the first place, then you're, we're going to have to do it. The states can basically do anything they want with your body. That is what is going to be pushed at any rate, even though, of course, again, most people will elide over the fact that the U.S. Supreme Court did not rule that Jacobson had to be forcibly injected, and he was not forcibly injected. He was not vaccinated. He ended up paying a $5 fine for refusing to be vaccinated. So, yes, this case obviously looms large over the entire issue of forced vaccination, which, in case you hadn't noticed, perhaps you've been in a coma for the past half half a year. If so, uh, I have some bad news for you. Uh, yes, this is a very relevant uh, case for today's discussion, and it is still being cited, you better believe, by the usual suspects, like the respected lawyer, professional, Alan, I kept my underpants on, Dershowitz. My view is very simple. You cannot be compelled to take a vaccine that's designed just to help you. If we develop a vaccine to prevent cancer or a heart attack, you have a choice. You have a right to die. You have a right to live. You have a right to take the vaccine or not. But if the vaccine is not intended to help you only, it's intended to prevent you from spreading the disease, the fatal, highly contagious disease to other people, then the state has the right to compel you to do it. The Supreme Court held that in 1905 in a case called Jacobson versus Massachusetts when the smallpox vaccine was at issue. And, you know, I grew up during the polio vaccine. I lost a friend uh, who died after being in an iron lung. And our heroes were, of course, uh, uh, Salk and Sabin and the others who invented the uh, vaccine that cured polio. So if the vaccine is safe and if it's designed to prevent the disease from spreading to other innocent people, then you have no choice. Look, theoretically, you have a choice. You don't have to have the vaccine. You can just be quarantined in your house for the rest of the pandemic. What you don't have the right to do is not have the vaccine come out and contaminate me. As I put it in a different context, every American has the right to inhale a cigarette, but you don't have the right to exhale it in my face. The right to swing your fist ends at the tip of my nose, and the right to infect your lungs with COVID-19 ends at the area around my nose, my eyes, and my mouth. So that's my civil liberties position in a nutshell. You see, everyone, 
perfectly reasonable. Yes, Alan, I met Maxwell through the Rothschilds, so take it easy on her. Dershowitz isn't going to forcibly inject anyone with anything. He doesn't want to strap him down and stick a needle in your arm. No, 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 no. You're perfectly free to refuse the vaccine. It just means you'll have to be quarantined inside your home for the remainder of the pandemic. And how long will that be exactly? When, when will the pandemic be declared over? When coronaviruses generally, or SARS-CoV-2 in particular, are finally admitted to be endemic and will never be eradicated? No, well, maybe not. Maybe the pandemic never ends. Anyway, just trust the health officials when they declare it over. And uh, you'll just have to stay inside your home until that, uh, until that happens, right? Hmm. Well, sadly, no, this reasoning is not exactly on the fringes of legal theorizing, at least in the U.S. context, at least at the present time, as you might have seen from recent headlines like this one. State Bar Association's Health Law Section report calls for mandatory COVID-19 vaccination, which notes that a COVID-19 vaccination should be mandatory for all New Yorkers, except those whose doctors exempt them, the Health Law Section of the New York State Bar Association recommends in a report issued today. The health law section said a rapid mass vaccination plan should be launched in New York as soon as a safe and viable vaccine becomes available, citing, say it with me, Jacobson v. Massachusetts, a 1905 U.S. Supreme Court case that upheld the authority of states to enforce compulsory vaccination laws. The plan should also prioritize vaccines for essential healthcare workers and vulnerable New Yorkers who are at highest risks of infection, the report states. So, of course, you see, as always, as always, the mixture of the stick, they will beat you over the head, you will accept this, we can enforce mandatory vaccine laws, as well as the carrot of, well, look, we'll give it to the health workers and important people first to make you desire it. Won't you clamor for this potato? You might remember from a recent propaganda watch. Um, so... Even more sadly than the fact that this is the state of the conversation, the legal conversation that's taking place in the United States right now, is that this is the same conversation that's taking place virtually all around the world right now. For example, in Australia, where there was a recent op-ed from the esteemed federal labor senator for Victoria, Raf Ciccone, who wrote, New COVID-19 restrictions will be needed for anti-vaxxers. Quote, to anti-vaxxers, I have one message. Our tolerance for your willful ignorance is over. We cannot afford, morally or economically, to give any ground to those who choose not to be vaccinated against COVID-19. Let me be clear. I'm not advocating that we vaccinate people against their will. That would be wrong. We must ensure that the safety of our community is the number one priority. That means that part participation in everyday life cannot put others at risk. If you do not want to be vaccinated against COVID-19, you ought to bear the consequences of that decision. As a community, we should consider to what extent we allow organizations to prevent those who object to being vaccinated against COVID-19 to enter their premises, participate in their activities, and, in some circumstances, seek their employment. Governments have gone some way to doing this by implementing policies such as withholding family tax benefits and preventing children from being accepted into child care unless vaccinations are proven. Further restrictions would be a natural extension of these policies. Restaurants could be allowed the right to refuse entry to those who are not vaccinated against COVID-19. Businesses, especially those involved in the care or service of vulnerable communities, might be allowed the right to refuse employment to those without a COVID-19 vaccination. Organizers of mass gatherings could deny the sale of tickets on this basis. End quote. I'll, of course, throw in the link to the full editorial so you can go and read it for yourself. But you see the way this debate is now being framed. It's perfectly voluntary. It's just that we will make sure that it will be harder and harder for you to participate in public life in any form, including and up to discrimination against uh, hiring you for employment if you do not have proof of your vaccination. It's the same debate that's happening in places like Germany right now. We get this from Deutsche Welle. WHO, anti-vaccination campaigns threaten global health. And somewhere down in the middle of that article, it says, quote, German MP Karl Lauterbach of the German Social Democratic SPD party said in an interview with newspaper Die Welt on Monday that he would advocate making vaccinations mandatory. Lauterbach said he would bring up the issue with the German health minister Jens Spahn with the hope of starting the discussion. The SPD politician believes such a nationwide conversation is needed because the previous campaigns in favor of voluntary vaccination 
have proven to be insufficient. Karen Mogg, spokeswoman for the parliamentary CDU-CSU group on health policy, approached the subject with more caution. Mogg said that although she sees opponents of vaccination as a major health risk, an assessment of countries with compulsory vaccination policies should be carried out to see if it could work in Germany. She referred to France and Italy as the primary cases. If it turns out that the two countries are successful in introducing compulsory vaccination, we should also discuss compulsory vaccination in Germany, said Mog. So you see, again, the tenor of this conversation that uh, the reasonable position in Germany right now is that, well, we'll just see if mandatory vaccination works out elsewhere in the EU and then we'll start doing it to our citizens. Oh, how reasonable. And unfortunately, this is very much the tenor of the conversation, as I say, that's taking place around the world right now, including in places like my home and native land of Canada. All right, so this is the big question. Uh, as we know, we're all waiting for a COVID-19 vaccine. So when and if it's ready, uh, should it be mandatory? A new Leger poll indicates that 40% of Canadians do not think it should be mandatory. What about you? Well, I want to first go to Cassandra, who wrote to mm. us on Facebook, and she said, I'm very pro-vaccine, but the idea of a vaccine that's been rushed and no long-term effects that have been documented make me very nervous. And I'm not sure I'm comfortable with injecting that into my body or my children. And Cassandra, I, I feel like, you know, you're inside my head because I feel very similarly. Uh, I'm very pro-vaccine, um, but this kind of global rush to find this, this, this you know, shot it does make me nervous. I wonder if it will be tested as vigorously um, in terms of not only safety, but efficacy. You know, ultimately, if we get to the point where it's like the flu shot is right now, which again, I'm pro flu shot, but it's kind of the message that we've been getting every year is it may help or it does help, but it's not, it's not a guarantee that you won't get it. I'm not sure if that was the message that was given once this vaccine is invented, that I would necessarily be super enthused if people were saying, yeah, and you must take it. It's that little piece there. Ultimately, though, I think if there is a vaccine, I, I, you know, I will do what the majority does because I hate that person who who basically kind of is like, oh, you know what? I'll let everyone else deal with the vaccine and then they'll protect me. I think that person is morally bankrupt. Hmm. Uh, it's interesting because all sorts of people are weighing in, Sin, including Karen on Facebook. Karen says, very difficult to say voluntary when we live in a universal health care system. If I get a shot and it costs the system $100 and my neighbor doesn't and gets sick and that costs the system $50,000, uh, that's not right. It's an interesting take on it, Karen. And I think, you know, is it really optional? Like, think about this scenario, okay? They say it's optional, but by not taking the vaccine, all of a sudden you can't travel, because at borders or at airports, at security checkpoints, they're asking to see proof of you having the vaccine in order for you to get on a plane. Uh, what if work is impacted? What if your employer says, you know what, if you're going to be in this building every day, you need to be vaccinated? You know, what if you can't get into stadiums, uh, sports arenas, concerts, because before you walk through those doors, they say, guess what, we need to see proof of a vaccination. Like, that's kind of what I see ahead. So, you know, voluntary, but maybe not voluntary. Yeah, it's funny because it's almost like saying, sure, you can have a choice to not have it, but it doesn't mean that you're going to be able to walk around life the way that you did before. What an interesting conversation. And from a mainstream Canadian news source, but it does raise a lot of the pertinent issues surrounding a very interesting and no matter what side you're on a very sticky and thorny theoretical issue about public health uh, for example of course they raise the point that even self-identified pro-vaxxers balk at the idea that they are going to be asked or forced potentially to inject themselves with a untested experimental or not adequately tested experimental uh, rushed vaccine that don't worry, just put it in you. It's an emergency. Throw out all the rules. Throw out all caution. Just just do it, and we'll sort out the consequences later. Even the most pro-vaccine type people hesitate a little bit at that idea. And then, uh, as one of the other hosts brings up, of course, it is 
it is a valid question. How voluntary is even a voluntary vaccine, one that is not legally mandated, if your participation in any meaningful sense in public life depends on you having the vaccination? Is that voluntary at all? And then the exceptionally interesting point that one of the social media participants brings up, well, in this socialized healthcare system that we live in, under in Canada, well, we, we all pay for the healthcare costs of everyone else. So if you do anything that harms your body in a way that you could have prevented it, and we're going to be the ones paying for those medical costs. So in a sense, we have an actual stake in your body. And so... Why, why can't we come in and mandate a vaccine, for example, that will keep you safe from this thing? Even if you don't want it, you silly person, we have a stake in your health. So we can tell you. I wonder how far that extends, because it is self-evidently the case that all of this garbage crap GMO processed food garbage that passes for food uh, for the majority of people these days is causing harm is causing obesity, is causing health effects, detrimental health effects. It is costing the people of Canada, for example. Everyone pays for everyone else's health care. Well, we're all on the hook for what you do to your body. Can the state come in and regulate your diet? Tell you you can eat this, but you cannot eat this, or you can only eat so much of this? If not, why not? Where do you draw that line and why? That's going to be an arbitrary line to draw, isn't it? Or what if you have some sort of terminal disease, you're going to die, and then you contract some other illness that's going to cost a lot of money, a lot of health care costs. Well, we're all paying for those health care costs, but you're going to die anyway. What, we can extend your life by a couple months maybe? Is that worth it? Maybe it's more a better investment of our dollars, our tax dollars that we're going to be paying anyway. Maybe we should be putting that towards hiring 10 more teachers for the local school board. But that's called the death panel, and you're not supposed to have that discussion. Right, Bill? But that's called the death panel, uh, and you're not supposed to have that discussion. Well, very good questions, aren't they? Doesn't this raise some of the very, very interesting questions when we start talking about who can come in and legally mandate what you can and cannot do to your body, or what you must or must not do to your body? Isn't that an important debate to be having with a lot of very interesting ramifications? I think a lot of people are sleepwalking into this conversation, which is why it needs to be brought out and into the spotlight. But if you get the feeling that you are being prepared for just such a conversation that is going to happen about mandatory vaccinations, and that part of the preparation for this is the debate that's happening in America and other places right now around mandatory mask wearing, then ding, 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 I think you are correct, and documentably so. There has been throughout, at the very least, this decade of vaccines, so-called, so announced by uh, Bill Gates back in 2010, throughout the uh, this decade of vaccines, part of that has been the setting of the groundwork for this conversation that we are about to start having in a serious way. And again, we can document that, so let's document it. Uh, we'll step back to 2012 when the SAGE, the Strategic Advisory Group of Experts, a subset of the World Health Organization, set up a working group dealing with vaccine hesitancy. And this working group ran from March 2012 to November 2014. Its terms of reference are up on the who.int page. I will link to it specifically in the show notes, but uh, Brief, briefly, they talk about preparing for a SAGE review and advice on how to address vaccine hesitancy and its determinants, define vaccine hesitancy in its scope, undertake a review of vaccine hesitancy, suggest one of several indicators of vaccine he hesitancy that could be used to monitor progress in the context of the decades of vaccines, at global, regional, and national levels, perform landscape analysis of who and what organizations are working on the issue, identify existing activities, identify strategies and activities, identify new activities, prioritize existing and new activities and strategies, outline the specific role of WHO. These are the terms of reference of this working group that was set up and that did function and did produce a report, for example, uh, I will again link to this report specifically in October of 2014. You have the report of the SAGE working group on vaccine hesitancy. And 
Actually, it, that work continues to this day through uh, other auspices. For example, we have amid COVID-19 vaccine race, Sabine Vaccine Institute and the Aspen Institute release report on vaccine hesitancy, a call to improve vaccine acceptance, which, oh, I'm sure you'll be shocked, shocked, I tell you, to find out that this second meeting of the Sabin Aspen Vaccine Science and Policy Group and its research and report were funded by the Bill and Melinda Gates Foundation. Because, of course, uh, I will also throw in as a link that I would very much suggest that you check out. Reducing SARS-CoV-2 transmission in the UK, a behavioral science approach to identifying options for increasing adherence to social distancing and shielding vulnerable people. This is from the British Journal of Health Psychology from the British Psychological Society, and it contains a very revealing and, well, downright creepy uh, grid of evaluation criteria for options to increase general social distancing, which notes, uh, for example, you could provide clear, precise, credible guidance about specific behaviors. All right, this sounds benign enough. Or you could use media to increase sense of personal threat. Think about what that's saying. Use the media to hype the threat. Uh, number three, use media to increase sense of responsibility to others. Public shaming and social shaming, bringing that pressure to bear on people, of course. Uh, number four, use media to promote positive messaging around op actions. There's also an appease grid of evaluation criteria for options to increase shielding of vulnerable people where they go through a lot of the same stuff. But think about that outright, 100%. The people who are literally taking behavioral science approaches to identifying options for increasing adherence to the guidelines being laid out by public health officials are right there in black and white. They're talking about using the media to socially shame people who aren't acting in the appropriate way or giving the pat on the back and the pat on the head to the good little school children who are doing what the teacher tells them to do or using the media to uh, to increase the, th the sense of a personal threat. People aren't feeling enough fear. We have to use the media to make them feel fear. So if you get the sense that there is a coordinated campaign that is, oh yeah, you better believe it, is absolutely going to be affecting all of us, uh, through the media is this coordinated propaganda campaign. Well, then, yes, you are correct. That is happening. And it is, as I say, you can look through all those documents. They're all linked up in the show notes. There is a coordinated effort going on. It's much bigger than what I've just pointed out, but those are some of the broad examples of it. So let's turn to a specific piece of how the media can be used to try to shape our perceptions on these issues. Let's turn to vice.com, everyone's favorite edgy alternative underground Disney-owned outlet, uh, April 2020, your body is a bioweapon. People using my body, my choice to protest coronavirus safety guidelines are putting everyone in danger. And this article starts out by talking about the then ongoing, oh my god, it's the end of the world, there are people protesting the lockdown movement. And uh, they point out that, for example, one photo of this protest stands out a young woman holding a small american flag and a white poster showing a crossed out surgical mask and emblazoned with the words my body my choice trump 2020 it's just the latest instance of people co-opting the abortion rights rallying cry as if it's a clever gotcha that it's somehow hypocritical to support both people's right to choose to have a medical procedure and also requirements that protect public health like wearing face masks uh, face coverings during a pandemic Anti-vaxxers have famously weaponized the language of choice in an attempt to prove their case that refusing vaccination is simply exercising their right to control their bodies. It's unsurprising that anti-vaxxers also had a presence at Saturday's event, holding signs that read, Vaccine mandates violate bodily autonomy. Such groups have been concerned for weeks that the pandemic will lead to mandatory vaccination. <sighs> Simpletons. But choosing not to wear a mask or not to stay home is extremely unlike the choice to have abortion. My body, my choice can neither be applied to vaccinations or emergency orders to prevent the spread of COVID-19. Abortion is entirely a personal decision that, and this is key, doesn't affect the health of your neighbor or your grocery store clerk or your bus driver 
or your unborn baby. Oh, sorry. No, I don't think she said that. Abortion is not a public health issue, while measles and coronavirus absolutely are. Your body, in other words, is a disease vector. Hmm. Think about that, and think about the headline of that article. Your body is a bioweapon. That is the biosecurity paradigm, the new political paradigm of the new... This is the new war on terror. It's now the war on the invisible enemy. We have entered the biosecurity paradigm, and that phrase is is it in a nutshell. Your body is a bioweapon. It needs, it has to be regulated by the state because you are a bioterrorist. Know it or not, you are a potential bioterrorist. And if they say they have found, detected the presence of a virus in your body, or even suspected you were in contact with someone who was infected with this virus. Therefore, your body is a bioweapon. We can regulate you in any way we want. And in order to let allow us to release you from this prison that we're constructing around you, this contact tracing prison, well, you'll have to have the vaccine. And this is it. And if you dare to try to use the my body, my choice slogan, ah, no, that only applies to abortion. That does not apply to what you what we can or cannot put in your body of course we can choose to vaccinate you if we say we can uh and if you think that's a one-off no vice is on a kick this just from a couple of weeks ago anti-vaxxers stole my body my choice from the abortion rights movement which makes essentially the same points basically saying this isn't about the the my body my choice this is about what's happening in a pandemic and it's a completely different thing but this is just one Example, and I'm sure everyone out there can point to other examples that you have seen in the media of how this debate is going to be framed. So, here's where we start to get into the reality of the upcoming idea of mandatory vaccinations, because we know it is in the cards. And here is an example of how it is going to be framed so that it can be then legislatively introduced. This is from the New England Journal of Medicine. Uh, just a couple of weeks ago, June 26, 2020, ensuring uptake of vaccines against SARS-CoV-2. It starts by saying, as COVID-19 continues to exact a heavy toll, development of a vaccine appears the most promising means of restoring normalcy to civil life. Perhaps no scientific breakthrough is more eagerly anticipated. But bringing a vaccine to market is only half the challenge. Also critical is ensuring a high enough vaccination rate to achieve herd immunity. Concerningly, a recent poll found that only 49% of Americans plan to get vaccinated against SARS-CoV-2. One option for increasing vaccine uptake is to require it. Mandatory vaccination has proven effective in ensuring high childhood immunization rates in many high-income countries. However, except for influenza vaccination of healthcare workers, mandates have not been widely used for adults. And then it goes on to address this problem and then say that we believe that six substantive criteria should be met before a state imposes SARS-CoV-2 vaccine mandate. Namely, criteria one, COVID-19 is not adequately contained in the state. So again, you have to rely on the statistical chicanery, which we've pointed out here in on this podcast in the past. So medical, the medical authorities, the unappointed medical experts and authorities that the state employs will tell you, well, we've detected so and so many cases, such and such, and there's no way for you to ever verify that number or ever disprove it, but just trust us. And therefore, it is not adequately contained in the state. Well, that seems like a fairly easy uh, criteria to fulfill. The second one, the Advisory Committee on Immunization Practices has recommended vaccination for the groups for which a mandate is being considered. For those not in the know, the ACIP is a uh, committee of the Center for De Disease Creation and Propaganda. So you better believe they do not meet many vaccines that they do not like. And uh, just as an example, just because this is the most mainstreamy place you could go, go to Wikipedia on ACIP and you'll see on their recent recommendations the story about uh, Pfizer and no Novartis lobbying to make their uh, serogroup B meningo men meningococcal vaccines uh, uh, recommended for everyone in the 16 to 22 age group. And just read through that little story of how that got recommended. So, yes, the ACIP is not going to be a particularly significant obstacle to ensuring that a vaccine is recommended for this or that age group or demographic. 
Uh, this third criteria, the supply of vaccine is sufficient to cover the population for which a mandate is being considered. Oh, don't worry about that. They're, the states are going to pay for it. They're going to put the, the whatever, millions, billions, however much it costs. Of course, they're going to pay out whatever they need to in order to get the vaccines. Oh, and when I say they, of course, that means you, because you are the taxpayer, so it's ultimately you who's paying for the privilege of being vaccinated. Uh, available evidence about the safety and efficacy of the vaccine has been transparently communicated. Well, of course, I mean, look, look, Moderna has already passing their tests of their new mRNA vaccine for uh, COVID-19 with flying colors. It's already showing that they've stimulated an immune response. Now, over half of the patients have have uh, developed some sort of adverse event reaction to the vaccine. But don't worry, most of those adverse events are not particularly serious, unless you're in the group that was receiving a large dose, in which case there was a significant percentage which had serious adverse reactions. But don't worry about that. Anyway, it's proven. And of course, all the mainstream headlines are, Moderna vaccine is proven. It's it's working. Yeah, it's stimulated the immune response. And they tend to leave out that adverse reaction uh, finding. But anyway, uh, criteria... Or what are we on? We're on four, I believe. Uh, no, five. Sorry. The state has created infrastructure to provide access to vaccination without financial or logistic barriers, compensation to workers who have, have adverse effects from a required vaccine, and real-time surveillance of vaccine side effects. So don't worry. The state will make sure that the, one way or another, you won't be indebted for life uh, to, as a result of taking this vaccine. We'll, they'll find a way to make sure that, that it can be paid for. And, and oh yeah, it'll require real-time monitoring of side effects. So, I mean, there will be some sort of monitoring and surveillance that goes along with this, but that's that's for the public good. And then the final sixth criteria for manda making mandatory uh, vaccine laws. In a time-limited evaluation, voluntary uptake of the vaccine among high-priority groups has fallen short of the level required to prevent epidemic spread. So don't worry, we won't have to mandate it if 99% of the public takes it voluntarily. But if you guys don't, we'll come along with the laws. Don't worry. So these are the six criteria, which on its face, it's just ridiculous. There's no way that uh, that the vaccine will fail these criteria when it is introduced. You better believe it. So... Here you go. And uh, why is this important? It's just a New England Journal of Medicine op-ed. Who cares? Well, as uh, Corbett Report guest Rosemary Frey was talking about recently, the uh, Ontario uh, adopted a bunch of recommendations from the New England Journal of Medicine because, well, we don't have the time to come up with our own advisory body and our own ideas. So let's just take these from the New England Journal of Medicine. Go watch that interview or re-watch re or re-listen to it if you forget about that detail. But yes, these types of op-eds or or articles, whatever you want to call them, in places like the New England Journal of Medicine can have very real consequences, legal consequences and ramifications. So look, they're already setting the framework for how they will justify putting in these vaccine mandates. And of course, the first step of this is mask mandates and other things. That is the first step of this fight. But it's really just to set the groundwork and the precedent and to open up the conversation so that they can start to address it in the way that they want. Now, this is the point where we arrive at the point where, okay, James, we get it, but what do we do about it? And this is the point where I have to remind you, I am a reporter. I am not here to tell you how to live your life. I am not here to solve your problems for you. I am not a father or a mother. I'm not a wizard. I'm not a god. I can't snap my fingers and make this situation go away or resolve everything for you. I cannot tell you this is the way. You do this and you will be protected. That is ridiculous, and you know it. So do not look to me to solve your problems for you. But as a reporter, I can tell you what people are around the world are doing and the way different groups are organizing and different efforts that are ongoing so that you can see ideas, emulate them if you like, adjust them to your own situation or locale, join them if they happen to be in your local area, and uh, hopefully add something positive to this mix. So on that note, let's start looking at some of the ways that people are out there addressing this issue. And we'll go before the COVID-19 hype uh, began this year. We'll look at the development of this vaccine hesitancy idea and the ways that it's being addressed. As I say, it was developed, this whole process of identifying criterion and, and determinants and, and reviewing and, and uh, finding ways to deal with them 
that has already been worked out at the international level through the WHO, through the uh, SAGE group. That's already been worked out, and now it's being worked out at the local levels, because just like UN Agenda 2030 and other such things, there's the overarching plan, but it's enacted in local venues so that it all has that local feel to it. And as an example, we just saw at the beginning of today's episode uh, the Toronto Board of Health having a hearing uh, to address vaccine hesitancy. And we saw the types of presentations that they were listening to on that note. So uh, I will refer you back to that that complete three and a half hour uh, video where there are a number of presentations about vaccine hesitancy and how the Toronto Board of Health is planning on addressing it. And there was, uh, for example, an introductory presentation from one of the doctors talking about what is vaccine hesitancy and what should we do about it. So you can get a lot more information from that. But let's turn back to an earlier Toronto Board of Health hearing on vaccine hesitancy, because it's a topic they keep coming back to, from earlier in 2019, where previous Corbett Report guest Rosemary Frey was addressing the hearing about some of the reality behind this idea of vaccine hesitancy and what's really be, uh, what's really behind the push to mandate vaccines. Hi, uh, thanks for letting members of the public speak. Uh, my name is Rosemary Frey. Uh, I know a few of you here. Um, I'm an MSc in molecular biology from the Faculty of Medicine at the University of Calgary, and I was a medical writer and journalist for 22 years. Uh, but I quit three years ago because I just got tired of being lied to every time I picked up the phone to talk to a medical researcher or physician about their work, their clinical guidelines. They'd always be, everything they were talking to me about was being skewed because of the pernicious influence of the pharmaceutical industry. They're all compromised. So I ran away, I pivoted to activism and journalism on social justice and economic issues. But I've been dragged back into the medical arena because of the hysteria that's been created about measles and anti-vaxxers. Anyone who has any, at all questions the safety or efficacy of vaccines is labeled as spreading false claims and misinformation. The population has been fooled into thinking that the, the, um, the corrupting influence of pharma stops at the door of vaccines and instead that people speaking out about problems with vaccines are the villains. Well, with my background, I'm pretty good at figuring out, figuring out what's mis misinformation and what's not. And I've discovered there's a ton of evidence that vaccines cannot be considered to be universally safe and effective. Just one quick example, the neurotoxicity of aluminum in injectable vaccines hyperactivates the immune system in fetuses and, in the, and also in the first few years of life. That, in turn, results in brain and immune system injuries and also immune disease, autoimmune diseases. This is well documented. And yet, the recommendations you have in front of you today compare people like me who question the safety and efficacy of vaccines to big tobacco and to seek to silence us and to place the authority to do this in the hands of the World Health Organization. Have you, all, have you forgotten that um, just 10 years ago, the World Health Organization was complicit in the wasting of billions of dollars by governments that stockpiled the ineffective Tamiflu vaccine? That decision was based on misinformation from the WHO. And this information was written by people who were paid by the distributors of Tamiflu. It's well documented, including in this book, um, Medicines and Organized Crime, How Big Pharma Corrupted Healthcare by Dr. Peter Deutsch, uh, Gutsch, who you may have heard of the Cochrane Collaboration, which is one of the reasonably, one of the fairly well-regarded uh, evidence-based uh, databases and, and analyses on medicine. And... Um, and I've also seen, there's other pillars to this. So there's the World Health Organization is complicit in not telling the truth and actually with drug companies. I've also seen firsthand how the media, unfortunately, are also complicit. It's, it's kind of shocking. I, um, I went to an editor that I've written for recently and I said, look, I'd like to write an article about how there's lots of information about vaccines and how they're great, but why is no information allowed by public health or by the media talking about adverse events, just like any other area of medicine? There's like Salmonella was in the paper the other day talking about how many are hospitalized. You don't hear about the real adverse events. And he said, well, you know, vaccines are safe and effective. And I think, is this working? Yes. And he said, actually, and also, pharma companies don't make any money off, off vaccines. So, so um, you know, what's the big deal? And that was a very odd statement. I looked at his background. In fact, he has had um, in dealings with pharma companies in a previous organization he, was, he dealt with. And also, 
he's a very smart, well-read person. If you take two seconds, you can find lots of information about the fact that vaccines are huge money makers for pharma. They're the top sellers for many of them. It took me two seconds to find this, this Financial Times article documenting, documenting operating margins of 25 to 30% for vaccine manufacturers and billions and billions in profits for the big four vaccine makers, Pfizer, GlaxoSmithKline, Merck, and Sanofi. And check the, the lobbyist registry records for the province and the, and the, and the feds, and you'll see they're, they're full court press to get these vaccines through. We pay for them. And we also pay for the public health for these education sessions. And, and if this is, tell me whether this is really um, truthful information coming from public health. This is the information from the session in the video. Aluminum, mercury, and formaldehyde, and other additives in vaccines are, are, and they make the vaccines safe by keeping the vaccines pure and stable before they're given to people. Aluminum salts are added as an adjuvant to strengthen the effectiveness of the vaccine. Adjuvants help stimulate the body's response to the vaccine, which results in getting faster, stronger, and longer-lasting immunity to a disease. With the information, where it's talking about adverse events, it's all pure. You can tell this is largely influenced by pharma. I've seen it before in my career for dozens of years. So in your, if you allow these, these regulations Sorry, you're to be just passed, coming up on five minutes. I'm going to yeah. ask you to wrap up in a yeah, sentence. Yeah, I will. Thank you. Thanks, Joe. Uh, if you're a complicit, in, if you allow these draconian recommendations, that you're going to be silencing and censoring people and organizations who are truly trying to educate the population of the, to the real and present dangers of vaccines, you're a complicit. Just going to ask you to wrap up. You're over five minutes. And you're good you. people, and you do a lot of good things for the city. But if you just follow orders and agree with these Sorry, you're over, you're over five minutes. You're Thank doing you. more your harm than good. Thank, Thank you. you. Once again, that is Rosemary Free, previous guest on The Corbett Report. I'll throw in the link to our previous conversation so you can go and check that out. But that is one example of engaging with the local boards and the local meetings that are the places where these types of things ultimately get decided. And although there is obviously cynicism out there about the process of engaging in such conversations and how useful it is, it should be noted that this is a war of attrition and we only lose if and when we give up. So, for example, here's an example of a win that will never be reported as such, uh, but is it does make its way into the mainstream feeds and disappear quite quickly. But this is from CBC News just last month. Mandatory vaccination bill defeated 22 to 20. Proposed legislation to strengthen mandatory vaccination rules for school children in New Brunswick has been defeated in the provincial legislature. Education Minister Dominic Cardi's bill to eliminate religious and f philosophical exemptions from the requirement for vaccinations was defeated 22 to 20 in a free vote among all four parties in the legislature. Uh, it goes on to say there are three there are people who make decisions based on evidence on both sides of the house. Cardi tweeted after the vote and those that don't. But Alliance leader Chris Austin said Cardi failed to win over a majority of MLAs because he brought us incomplete information to, affi to fix a system that nobody says is broken. So, regardless, this political debate is not necessarily always going to result in, in uh, defeat for the side who are uh, opposing this mandatory vaccination. So, inserting yourself in that conversation is I, I'm not going to tell you whether or not that's useful or useless. That is, again, up to you as a sovereign human being to decide for yourself. If you are interested in that, it behooves you to find out about political organizations and parties that in your area that are in line with your interests. Again, I am not a political uh, person in the sense of engaging in the political system, but there are people out there who are, and I'm not going to tell you not to do that or what to do it at all. Uh, I, For example, I just got an email from a listener uh, who was promoting the New Zealand Public Party, which has such things on its uh, uh, issue page as we will ensure that public health and safety is a prime mandate. So they will establish a legal framework where people's right to safety is a primary goal over corporate profits, such as 5G, fluoridation, vaccines, pharmaceuticals, poisons, 1080, electromagnetics, industrial products and waste, consumer products, food products. Again, if this is something that you're interested in, if you are in New Zealand, I will throw in the link so you can check it out. As I say, whatever locality you're in, there is probably some group that is acting in some way, not necessarily only on the political level, although it often takes that form. But here's an example of a different type of organization, one being organized by Pam Popper called Make Americans Free Again. 
Uh, and you can go into the page again, I'll include the link and you can read the spiel and they're about voting issues and supporting local businesses and homeschooling resources and lawsuits and activism. And on that front, there are legal challenges to these various measures that are taking place around the world. For example, in my home and native land of Canada, this coming from vaccinechoicecanada.com, press release, legal challenge to COVID-19 measures filed in Ontario Superior Court. From July 8th of 2020, we are living in unprecedented times. The mass and indiscriminate containment of citizens, the restriction of access to parliament, the courts, medical and educational services, the destruction of local economies and livelihoods, and the requirement to physically distance, along with the forced use of non-medical masking, are extraordinary measures that have never been imposed on the citizens of Canada. The impact of these aberrant measures on our physical, emotional, psychological, social, and economic well-being is profoundly destructive, and these actions are unsustainable, unwarranted, extreme, and unconstitutional. And it goes on to say, on Monday, July 6, 2020, Vaccine Choice Canada formally filed legal action in the Ontario Superior Court to hold multiple parties accountable for their actions with respect to COVID-19 measures. The defendants include the Government of Canada, the Government of Ontario, the Municipality of Toronto, various public health officers, the Canadian Broadcasting Corporation, among others. Vaccine Choice Canada has a long history and enviable reputation of advocating for and defending the rights and freedoms of Canadians when it benefits to the public and individual health. Once again, I'll let you read that in its entirety and to explore that website if you happen to be Canadian and you want to support that that uh, initiative, you can find out more information through the show notes. Again, this is a very, very, very broad issue that affects everyone who is listening to me all around the world, but it affects you in different ways. There are different contexts in different places where different measures and different groups are taking form, and there's no way to comprehensively document and detail that in a podcast like this, obviously. So it is going to be incumbent on you to seek out and to hopefully connect with other people in your local area that will be able to work on issues like this. So uh, once again, of course, the Corporate Report community is certainly free to uh, discuss such details in the Corporate Report comment section or anywhere else online that you choose to congregate to discuss these matters and to organize in whatever way you see fit. But let me bring this back to the fundamental bedrock level of my body, my choice, bodily autonomy. What does that even mean? And I would posit that bodily autonomy cannot exist without cognitive autonomy. We have to be free in our minds and understand and be informed about these issues and engage with them and to understand our own mindset on these things. Where do we draw the line in sand? What, what is that line in the sand? And what do we stand on? What do we, what do we not wanted? What hill do we not want to die on? And what will we accept? What won't we accept? These are fundamental bedrock issues that you might recall I was talking about back in the subscriber newsletter, back when this generated crisis really got kicked off uh, in March. I did Your Guide to Surviving a Crisis, where I did note uh, amongst the, the various measures that I was talking about, one of them have plans in place for different eventualities. Part of that is simply making a list Start stating what it is that you will do, what it is you will not do, and what it you what you will do when it comes to that point of something you are trying to be forced to, to do something that you don't want to do. What will you do? What won't you do? How will you prepare for various eventualities? It is good to articulate that, not just think about it in a woolly way. Write it down. Have a plan in place. What will you do? What will you stand for? What will you not stand for? What will you do when you get to that line in the sand? How will you avoid getting to that line in the sand? Again, unfortunately, I can't do that thinking for you. I can only point to what other people are doing and ask you to reflect on it for yourself. And finally today, I will bring it back down to the level that I think is the basic bedrock level of everything that is within our purview to do and not to do in situations like this, which is to comply or not to comply. That is ultimately our choice, and there will be consequences for non-compliance, I am sure. And those consequences, again, will differ in different localities, and perhaps those consequences will be such that you will not want to, uh, to face them, and you will comply. Again, that's a choice everyone's going to have to make, but you're going to have to really understand what that choice is, and that it is a choice. You can choose to comply or not to comply. And that is what it comes back down to. This is something that I stressed recently in my recent conversation with Keith Knight on the politics of obedience, the 500-year-old wisdom of Etienne de la Boeti, exceptionally important at times like this. It's something that I've talked about, for example, in film literature in the New World Order, and then there were none. 
an exceptionally important work, Freedom, I Won't. Uh, again, very bedrock ideas. I've talked about this before, lessons in resistance, non-compliance. These are important issues, and I stressed it again with James Evan Pilato in New World Next Week, just this past week, talking about Serbia and the people revolting there and saying no, not complying with the orders. These are things that we're going to have to cogitate on, and obviously I'll be circling back around to this topic again and again, but it is something that I think we need consciously in the forefront of our minds, and I think we also need to wrestle with the real ethical issues involved that are brought up here. What is bodily autonomy? Is there a line where you can draw, where you can say, no, you cannot do this because you will endanger other people, or you must do this, or you must not do that? Who gets to draw that line? In what way? Unless you are very clear in your own thinking on these things, how will you be able to articulate that to anyone else? Because, as I say, this conversation is going to happen, and the other side has been funded by billions of dollars from gigantic foundations and even entire nation states, and there's been all sorts of discussion and preparation for this. Behavioral scientists have been scheming out the best way to introduce these ideas to you uh, and to the general public. So the deck is stacked against us. We better start thinking about these things and engaging in this conversation. And today's episode is to open up this conversation explicitly so that we can start engaging in it in a meaningful way. I hope the resources that I've put on the table today are useful for you. If so, of course, they are available at corbettreport.com slash mybody. If you go there, you can find every single document, video, everything that I've cited today, and you can start exploring these issues for yourself. And coming down to the question, is it my body, my choice, or your body, their choice? James Corbett, corbettreport.com.